Welcome to episode 133 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to former agent Kevin Barrows, who served in the FBI for six years. He was assigned to the New York Division, where he investigated white-collar crime. In this episode, he reviews a major identity theft case involving a group of individuals who stole more than 30,000 identities through the unauthorized computer-based accessing of information from personal credit reports. Kevin Barrows was also the lead agent on a multi-jurisdictional, multi-agency securities fraud case that culminated in the arrest of more than 120 individuals, including members of several organized crime families. For his role in this case, he received the Department of Justice Director's Award for Outstanding Contributions in Law Enforcement. During and since his resignation from the Bureau, Kevin Barrows has testified on many occasions before grand juries and in trials in federal court. He was an expert witness for the government on computer forensic issues in the United States versus Martha Stewart. Currently, Kevin is a security consultant for the National Hockey League and has co-written and hosted training videos for the NHL, the National Football League, and Major League Baseball on topics of identity theft and internet security. Kevin is the principal of Renaissance Associates, a professional services firm. Kevin is a rare bird in that he did not stay with the FBI until retirement. I use the word rare because the FBI has a remarkable attrition rate. Less than 0.8% of employees resign before retirement. Kevin had a very successful, albeit short, FBI career, and I'm happy to have him on the show. I want to give producer credit to listener Mike Georgeberg, who suggested that I contact Kevin and invite him to be on the show. Thanks, Mike. Before we get to the interview, two last things. I am preparing for the premiere of the new CBS show, FBI. I have been uh, posting things on social media. I have actually created a new Twitter handle, FBI TV Review, where I've been doing a countdown of 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV, and movies. I am hoping that I love this new TV show. I'll provide a reality check because sometimes it's difficult for TV writers to get it exactly right within the confines of the one-hour TV show time constraints. And the last thing is that I want to make sure to invite you to join my reader team. Just once a month, I send out a digest of podcast episodes, crime fiction recommendations, and keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. And this month's email, I talk about the CBS show, FBI. You can sign up on my website, jerrywilliams.com, or on my Facebook page, Jerry Williams Author. I'll also put a link in the podcast app show notes 
Don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Kevin Barrows. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. I was actually introduced to you through one of my listeners who knew about your case, knew about you, and thought you would be an excellent guest on this show. So it's all about identity fraud. Could you tell us first, before we start the case review, what's identity fraud? Identity fraud is essentially the theft of some personal information. Uh, Today we call it PII, personal uh, identity information. And it's using that information to pose as someone else and to obtain credit uh, in someone else's name and credit cards and, you know, mortgage, uh, steal mortgage information and get loans and have them sent to some, you know, address, remote address, um, and essentially steal someone's financial uh, future. I can tell you that of all of the crimes that could happen, you know, other than, of course, a, a violent crime, identity fraud is one of the things that scares me the most because I've known people who have had their identity stolen and it takes them forever to clean up their account. Yeah, that's that's one of the obviously the most difficult parts about this crime, and and it's really there's two aspects. I mean, one of it is the, of course, the financial aspect that's uh, very difficult for people to overcome. But the second part is there's an emotional aspect. Is a violation. People feel violated by this crime as well. It becomes very personal. So um, it sort of hits people in, in two very distinct ways. I was reading some of the material that you sent over, and it was actually 20 years ago, in 1998, that Congress made identity theft a federal crime. Yes, that's, that is true. But back then, um, it really was – the Identity Theft uh, and Assumption Deterrent Act – I think that's uh, – Deterrence Act, I'm sorry. The Identity Theft and Assumption Deterrence Act in 1998 essentially made having fake sort of identity documents on you a crime. But it wasn't really until 2003, after I think the case that we're going to discuss, that the uh, they decided to make or, or enact the Identity Theft Deterrence Act, which made any fraud related to uh, identity theft a, a crime. So it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a distinction there, but that is true. In 1998, it was the first time that any kind of identity theft was a crime, federally at least. All right, so that all leads us to. This case, which I understand at the time at least was one of the biggest identity fraud, or the biggest identity fraud case in the yes. nation. Yes. Was there a code name for it? Uh, no, there wasn't. I mean, we called it Ford Motor Credit case. It really wasn't about Ford Motor Credit. Ultimately, it was the United States versus Cummings. Uh, but it was not an undercover operation. There was no code name for it. It came to it came to us as uh, you know an active case. All right. So where do you want to start? Uh, perhaps when we when we got this case, how we got this case, and, and I'll sort of give you a bit of a summary from there if that works. That works. All right. So in early 2002, um, I at the time uh, was on the bank fraud squad in the New York office, and Ford Motor Credit Company had learned that some unique subscriber codes and passwords for one of its branches in Grand Rapids, Michigan, had been compromised. And that compromise began sometime, they think, in the spring of 2001. So approximately a year earlier, and that resulted in the unauthorized downloading of about 15,000 credit reports. So, for example, if you go to a Ford dealership 
and you want to buy a Mustang, when you want a loan from Ford to buy that car, they, of course, request your credit report to see if you're credit worthy. The Grand Rapids branch realized that 15,000 reports were requested, but they didn't have consumers who were buying cars, and that became a real big issue. So Ford, amongst many other financial institutions, used this particular kind of software to interact with the credit reporting companies. And this was uh, software was made from this company called TCI at the time in Long Island. In any event, this, this fraud uh, by Ford was reported, of course, to the FBI in Detroit, uh, who initially investigated the case for a few months. The Detroit agents were initially told by the credit reporting agencies, and by that I'm speaking about Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, that it was impossible to link its local telephone number to any of these unauthorized credit reports because there are hundreds of 800 numbers that these dealerships and banks and institutions were able to call to access the credit reports. So if you have hundreds of 800 numbers, there's just absolutely, they, they said, no way to determine if a, what local numbers came in on what 800 number to meet up exactly with the time there's a fraudulent report requested. So Detroit office ultimately said, look, there's a lot of these IDs are being sent to New York. So we're going to sort of throw this case off to the New York office. And the New York office, before I got the uh, case, there were some postal inspectors who were helping the Detroit office. And they were going out to local P.O. boxes, of course, where some of these ID identity, uh, um, these false identities were being sent, or these stolen identities, I should say, were being sent. And they were arresting, you know, young kids who were being paid $50 or $20 to go pick up mail. And these kids had no knowledge of who was behind the scheme and who was sending them there. And so it was really a lost cause at that point. I had gotten on the squad only, you know, a few months before after working another large high-profile case. And uh, my supervisor said, look, I'd like you to take this case. And about 16 brown boxes landed on my desk a day later from Detroit. And he said, look, uh, they can't solve this, but apparently the White House is, is all over this case. And they want you to find out, you know, us to find out who's doing it. So that's sort of how I got, you know, thrown into this whole whole case. And, uh, you know, part of it is because I had some experience in large complex and some of the high profile, some high profile cases previously. So I met with the United States attorney at the time um, and the AUSA, who's uh, the assistant United States attorney, who's the chief of general crimes for the Southern District of New York. And I reviewed all these records and documents and so forth. And obviously, I was convinced that the only way to solve this case was not to follow these young kids from picking up mail around New York. And it was all over all the boroughs because these people were unable to give us any real information about the brains of the scheme. So, you know, I said, look, the only way to do this is to find out, of course, who is requesting the credit reports, because that's going to be the brains of the scheme. And I knew that. Who stole these subscriber codes and passwords for all of these financial institutions and these car dealerships and everything else? So the long and the short of it is, is that, uh, I was able to eliminate, of course, employees of these financial institutions, the banks and the, and the dealerships, because again, it wasn't just one dealership or one bank. And the only common denominator was this TCI, this company that made the, 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 the software for these places to interact with the credit reporting company. So ultimately, I felt that it was probably a help desk representative at some point, either current or former, because I felt like they had, they had access to all of the subscriber codes and passwords. So I turned my attention to reviewing all the records for help desk people, interviewing people, 
looking for people who are, of course, reprimanded or had problems at the company in the past, someone who was disgruntled. Uh, but at the same time, I was working very closely with Equifax in particular because I just felt that it was it's critical to find a local telephone number that came into their system and can directly be linked to one of these illegally obtained reports. So the problem was at the time is that the credit reporting agencies were able to link the subscriber codes to a report. So they knew every report, for example, that was requested by the Grand Rapids branch. But they had no interest at the time in tracking local numbers that were calling their 800 numbers. That was completely irrelevant to them. Unfortunately, it was extremely important for us. So we worked months and months and months. And I say combing records, myself and a representative of Equifax. And we found sort of patterns initially. We found patterns of the fraud that would become that they were requested in bunches. So we were able to sort of start to go through each 800 number and eliminate some numbers and some calls. Did you do this digitally, or, or did you actually have to look through like Excel sheets of phone numbers and transactions? We literally looked through printouts of phone numbers and phone calls. Wow! It was not digital at the time. Right. Wow. Uh, it was an unbelievable, mon- it was a monumental task. And, and you know, I, 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 it's one of those things where you begin to lose hope after a while, but you just keep going. Um, and fortunately, an incredible stroke of luck, we found one particular New, uh, New York number, 914 number, that came into one of the 800 numbers at the exact time when we know a fraudulent request was made. So we felt that, look, this is solid information. I went. And we got a search warrant for a particular house in New Rochelle, New York. As it goes, a couple of days before Halloween in 2002, myself and a team of agents showed up at the house early morning. We knocked on the door and went in. There was a family inside, a man by the name of Linus Baptiste, and then his family members. And um, I remained downstairs interviewing the family members. And they, of course, denied any knowledge of this. And I interviewed Mr. Baptiste, who denied as the agents and went and conducted the search. After about two and a half or three hours, the agents came down and said, look, Tim, we didn't find anything. There's nothing here. And it was about as low as I'd ever been. Now, what sure. were they looking uh, I'm for? Sorry. When you go into a search, they were looking for evidence of uh, identity theft. So that would be credit reports predominantly, social security numbers, links to some of the um, other perpetrators in the crime, things like that. You know, anything that would have led us to believe that credit reports were being downloaded from that address. And we knew it was happen- it happened on at least one occasion because we knew we had that link in the telephone records. But the goal here was to determine, is this person a big player in the crimes? Is it one of the people who was actually requesting, re- requesting the credit reports? So we searched for hours. I, I, wasn't, I didn't participate in the search because I was sort of interviewing the family members and I was also, you know, coordinating with the Southern District, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, during the search. And at the end, when they came down and said, we have nothing, I was absolutely crushed. I said, I cannot believe we didn't find anything. No credit reports, no Social Security numbers, no computers that contain this information, nothing. So we were about to leave, and a few agents had already left. We had some boxes under our arms that were still folded, unfortunately. And I was, as I was walking out, since I hadn't had the opportunity to walk through the house yet, particularly upstairs, 
I said to uh, one of the agents, I said, come with me for a minute. I just want to take a look myself. So at least when I speak with the assistant U.S. attorney, I can explain what the house looked like and that kind of thing. So I went upstairs and I walked into the master bedroom and it was a huge master bedroom. And in the middle of the room was a massive king-size bed with a really large gothic canopy. So I stood looking at it for some reason. Don't ask me why. But I noticed that the canopy seemed to have a big droop in the middle of it. So I just thought that was strange. So I got up onto the bed frame. I started tapping around on the top of the canopy. As I reached over, I started to feel something. I was tapping like paper. And I reached up and I grabbed about, I don't know, 15 or 20 manila envelopes and folders filled with social security numbers and credit reports. So at that point, we called everyone back, the whole team back, uh, search team, and we all began to sort of really pull apart the furniture and behind the piece of furniture was a laptop computer, um, which ultimately contained all of the social security numbers and all of the information, which proved that Mr. Baptiste and his brother-in-law, this guy Philip Cummings, who actually worked at TCI as a help desk representative, had perpetrated this whole crime. Now, did you know that Cummings had worked at on the help desk when you went into the house? You had the phone number. Did you also know yes. that the... Oh, so you did. No, 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 because remember, the house we searched was not Cummings' house. Cummings at the time had moved to Atlanta. This was Linus Baptiste, a guy named Linus Baptiste's house. I had no idea that, you know, there's any connection between Linus Baptiste and Cummings or that Cummings had left a, a, quite a while before the investigation. He wasn't a, re you know, he, he hadn't departed TCI, you know, recently. So he wasn't necessarily on the radar at the time. And certainly I wouldn't have known that Linus Baptiste was his brother-in-law. So why was, it sounds like it was almost a sixth sense that you had that made you go back upstairs or go upstairs and conduct your own search. I mean, I'm sure you had confidence in the agents that were helping you with the search, but it sounded like something made you say to yourself, no, it's got to be here. Yeah. What was that? That is, that is true, and I can't really explain it. And sometimes, as I've said to many people in my career, I've been very lucky, and and if God gave me any skill, it's instincts. I have very good instincts, and that's what's carried me through my whole career to this day. So that really paid off on that particular day. I just felt like I want to look myself. I just want to absolutely be able to say that I took a look and, you know, I sort of, you know, I feel that uh, I, I did my job if I did, you know, didn't look myself to some degree. Um, so that was really important for me to do. And on this particular day, it, it, it worked out. So now you have all these files. You have the laptop. As soon as you gather all of that, do you know, okay, we're going to be able to solve this and we're going to be able to send some people to jail? No question about it. I mean, I didn't know the, the extent of it. Of course, from there, people begin to plead guilty and you begin to cooperate. And then we began to sort of infiltrate the chain of street criminals who were involved in the crime. So essentially the crime worked like this. Baptiste had the connection to the street criminals throughout the boroughs of New York. The uh, brother-in-law, Cummings, had the security codes and passwords to be able to access credit reports. 
Baptiste essentially went to these street criminals and they met at a particular restaurant or two and they would pay him 30 to 50 to 100 dollars a report. Criminals would give them him names. He would give them to his brother-in-law to run. They'd split the money. So even if it's $30 and there's 30,000, it's been estimated really up to 50,000 people were victimized, but 30,000, it's three to, you know, and $30 a report or $50 report is a heck of a lot of money split between these two guys. And that's really how the scheme worked. And so we were able to then, even after I left, many, many arrests were made on some of these street criminals who were the ones who were actually using those credit reports to steal people's identity. Let's talk a little bit about the victims because I, I do want to make sure we get a full understanding of what it means when your identity when your identity is stolen and how it can affect sure. your life. Can you go through a number of victims and, and what happened to their finances? Sure. In many cases, it was um, someone's home equity loan was diverted. So once you have a credit report, as you know, you have all the information. It's really the key to the kingdom, right? A credit report has your social security number, your your all of your all of your debts, all of your finances. Uh, so I would know who your mortgage is with, who your home equity line, line of credit is with, and that kind of thing. So these criminals would get the report. They say, "Oh, this person has these credit cards. Let's have some new cards sent to a new address." Okay, so because I have the credit card number, I have all the information I need. I have the social security number. I'll call up Chase or Mastercard or Visa, and have them send new cards to a Brooklyn address now, right? Some PO box in Brooklyn. And I'd do the same thing perhaps with the home equity line of credit. And I'd also get some Best Buy and some sort of quick credit cards at some local establishments, many of which may have been in, involved or looked the other way, if you will, many of which didn't. And um, I can just just continue to use those credit cards and then sell them. I wouldn't, you know, the first person who obtains the information from these credit reports then sells that information to someone else or sells the credit cards to another party. So that's why it's such a difficult crime to investigate. It's because it's not like it's two people. It's a lot like terrorism network in that they're cells. And the person who steals the ID isn't necessarily the person who uses it. That person then sells it. It's a resale process to someone else who then uses, you know, the credit cards. You might sell the home equity line to someone else, for, you know, uh, and that person then would access the home equity line of credit. So, it's a very, very difficult crime. It's very well organized, typically, and it certainly was in this case. And uh, people lost, you know, uh, you know, a lot of money. I mean, there were a lot of personal finances that were infiltrated in this, and people's home equity lines were absolutely uh, completely decimated. Now, so a lot of that time, even then, people weren't on the hook. Like banks would step up and, and um, take the loss, in effect. Not necessarily individual, but to get to that process was an absolute nightmare for people. To have to prove all of that, to, and, and then there were other things that they, you know, credit card charges with a credit card company. You you know how the difficult it can be, even if you've ever had somebody, you know, put you know fraudulent charges on a credit card once. I mean, it's it's a bit of a nightmare. It takes a lot of time to get the credit card companies on, and they have to do an investigation. So people really, there's an enormous amount of duress. Still some financial, certainly financial loss, but institutions took a huge hit. I mean, millions and millions of dollars. I used to hear a lot more about identity theft. Am I not hearing more about it now because it's just everybody's used to it and it's still happening? Or have there been measures put in place that 
has reduced the risk? There have absolutely been measures put in place to reduce the risk, no question about that. People are much more alert and in tune with it now. People are much more careful about their how they carry, you know, their personal information and what they carry and how they present it and how it's protected. Even laws such as, well, they don't put credit, uh, um, they don't put social security numbers on, on your, you know, medical cards anymore. Those kinds of things help to reduce identity theft. Is it still happening? Absolutely. Every day. And, it's, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing to ever stop completely. But there have been a lot of great measures put in place over the years security, and people are just in tune with it now. See, that's the one thing about that case, the Cummings case, it really, and I think it may have been the U.S. attorney who said it, it sort of awakened the conscious, uh, consciousness of the country because people really didn't understand at the time how severe this problem could become in the United States domestically. It really wasn't something people were concerned about. As I said, the law at the time really was worried about false documentation, which is really not the issue, or wasn't the issue back then. So people weren't really, in particularly in the United States, not a lot of people were paying attention to it. And after the case, that case, Congress paid attention to it, as did the rest of the country. I think it scared a lot of people into saying, you know, into realizing, hey, I've got to, I've got to protect my, my information. Well, let's go back to the case a little bit more. I'd like to, to dial sure. down. When you talked about people cooperating, and you have Batista, yeah. you said, and you had Cummings. I guess the, the main yeah. person that you'd be interested and is coming. Tell me about your interaction with him and, uh, you know, how he assisted you with the uh, resolution of this case. Well, ultimately, it wasn't Cummings because Cummings decided he wasn't going to cooperate and he went to jail for a long time. He got one of the, I think he got something like 14 years, if I recall, which is an enormous hit in a white-collar case. Really? Um, and, and why was yeah, that? Yeah, I have no idea. Um, I can't tell you. He was a strange character at the time. Um, but he he did not cooperate. And Baptiste cooperated, of course, and he he was actually a much more important component in the scheme because Cummings really only had the inside. He was the insider. So, yes, he stole the passwords and the passcodes and the usernames for the various institutions. But Baptiste knew that. And he knew the street criminals. So that that cleanup was really important. Uh, it was, it was, because if we had just had Cummings, we wouldn't have known. Cummings had no idea who these reports were being sold to. No idea. All he did was run names. So really, Baptiste ended up being the most important component. And fortunately, he did, he did assist. Was there a trial? There was no trial for those two, meaning Cummings and Baptiste. There were numerous trials that came out of some of the lower level, you know, street criminals who were using this, the the uh, credit reports. Numerous trials, but no, not for those two. They uh, uh, both pled pled guilty. Wow, it's it's really strange to hear somebody who pled guilty but did not also cooperate. Yep, that's true. Yeah. That is well, true. Well, you said he was kind of a. A strange guy, so <laughs> yeah, I can I, uh, he, yeah, and I'm not sure. Once, once Baptiste was on board, I'm not, sure, you know, what he wasn't really he didn't have any value at that point. I get it. Now, because you know, I read in some of the things that I was reading, I read that you're considered a thought leader in identity theft. So, I'd like to take this time to talk a little bit more about other ways 
that your identity can be stolen. And I know the one that comes to mind is, you know, all of these emails, these phishing emails that I get myself every day. So could you explain what phishing is and ways that that we still need to check our identity and make sure it's not stolen? Sure. Phishing is essentially a fraudulent email that is that that purports to be from a legitimate source. It looks real and feels real to someone, and uh, it goes out in mass quantities, of course, with the hopes that a small percentage will, will actually click through the email and provide. It'll ask for personal information. Usually, these emails have something in them that there's some urgency. For example, it might come from a bank, and maybe your bank it may not. But if they send if an email is sent from to you know 300,000 people. Some of those people are going to be, let's say, you know, Chase customers. So it'll come, it'll look real, okay? They sort of steal, you know, all of the atmospherics from the actual bank's email. If you look in the URL, which is in the code, you know, in in the website um, at the top of your browser, it'll look real. But instead of saying www.chase, it'll say www.rs.chase. Right? Because that's a spoofed address. So you have to look carefully at the URL. Is it really a Chase uh, website it's coming from or email address? But they send this email that purports to say, look, you have to respond right away or you're going to lose access to your account. Something that makes you want to, you know, act quickly. Or IRS, it'll come from the IRS purportedly. And it'll say, you owe the IRS money. We're going, you know, you're going to be arrested. You must act quickly. Provide us with your information. And I know that people my whole career said to me, why would anyone do that? <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised, as I always say, these people are good at what they do, and they create that sense of urgency. It looks legitimate, and people panic. And even if it's, again, 10 people, 20 people, 50 people, it doesn't have to be, you know, 300,000 people. Um, it's a win for these thieves. So you click through, it'll take you to another screen, which is, of course, some server in, uh, you know, Russia or, or somewhere else offshore typically. And you'll ask you for information, personal information. They'll say if you provide us this information, you know, you won't have any issue basically, you know, and, uh, or, or we'll, op- we'll, uh, unlock your account. And once you put that information in, it's gone. Once you hit send, it's on a server remotely somewhere. They've got your name, they've got, you know, your date of birth, social security number, they've got an address, and they're off to the races at that point. So phishing is, will always be a problem in this digital age, and, they, and these crooks get better and better at it. My husband is not very computer savvy, and he would be the type of person who would fall for something like this. Don't tell him I said this, but right. you know, <laughs> I, have, I have been trained. If we get anything, you know, from the bank that there's, you know, there's a problem with our account or, or anywhere, I have them trained to wait until I look at it. We've got something from, you know, uh, USAA, and I'll say, let me look at it. Right. Um, and, and, you know, almost it's, always it's, it's fraudulent. Absolutely. And I, I will tell you that if people just listen, if they just subscribe to the once, you know, Simple, simple, simple um, tenant, and that is don't ever respond to someone who's calling you or who's emailing you. Call them or email them, and then you know who you're sending it to or who you're calling. 
See, that's the difficulty where people, and it happens still telephones. It still happens where people are scammed on on the telephone, right? People call up and say, I'm from wherever, and I need information. And they make you panic, right? I'm from the FBI, and I'm coming for you. You know, I need your information right away, and we can we can fix this whole problem. And, and that, that, you know, people panic, and they say, oh, God, I'll give you whatever you need. And, uh, you know, I, I, I even taught my kids, hey, nobody, you never give information to somebody who calls you, even if it could be legitimate. Because if it's legitimate, we'll be able to call them and verify that. So on emails, it's the same thing. If there's ever an email that comes in that looks like it's legitimate and somebody's requesting any kind of information, you delete it and make a call because you know who you're calling, right? You know the number for Chase Bank. You can call it, and I've done it so many times, and, you know, 40, 30% of the time, it's fraudulent at least. Maybe 40% of the time when I've called um, back, they say, we never sent any emails out. That's a scam. We've never called you. We wouldn't call you and ask you information. So if people can just at least do that much, it would really uh, protect them, you know, at least 50, 60% of the time. How did, going back to the case, how did Cummins, get introduced to this because it sounds like he didn't have a connection to the, you know, criminal world. So how did he get involved in this in the first place? Well, through his brother-in-law, through Baptiste. Baptiste said, hey, look, I have a way we can make money. Cummings wasn't working at the time. I think he had moved down south. Baptiste said, hey, you, how, he discovered that he had access to this information from where he previously worked and said, I got a way to make money. It was easy money. I mean, really, it took absolutely nothing to make a lot, a lot of money. Like most criminals, they didn't think they'd ever be caught. Yeah. How many victims do you recall were part of this case? And can you sum up how many subjects you were able to to take down? Sure. Uh, Victim-wise... The reports were 30,000, but that's, that was early on. I think, you know, um, my guess is it's probably closer to 50 plus thousand. So it was a, it was a substantial case in that respect for sure. And as far as the, uh, the arrest, there are at least 20 plus arrests and convictions in the case. It actually may have been considerably more. Again, a lot was done when I left for another at least year or two. There were indictments and 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 arrests made. So it may have been as many as 50 in the end of these sort of street criminals and so forth that were arrested and, and these identities that rings were broken up. So it, it it had a pretty large impact at the time on what was a very organized ring of thieves. Now, I know that this is not your only big financial fraud case. I'd like to just touch just real quickly on another major investigation that you were involved in while you were assigned to the New York office. And this one involved the mob. Yeah, I was fortunate. I, I, I Again, I was kind of like the Forrest Gump of the FBI. I happened to be in the right place at the right time, but the New York office provides an enormous opportunity to get involved in some really great cases from an agent's perspective. But uh, that case uh, you're speaking of is a mob on Wall Street. I was in the securities fraud. I was on the securities fraud squad, and um, it was really um, again mob infiltrated Wall Street in boiler rooms and manipulating stock. And 
my partner and I ran a uh, couple year long investigation and undercover operation called Operation Uptick, which culminated in June of 2000 in the arrest of 120 mob on Wall Street type criminals. I think the count was even higher when it all, all the smoke had cleared. And it really, I think, put a dent in the mob's uh, infiltration of the financial markets at the time, certainly the boiler room aspect of it. The U.S. attorney at the time, Mary Jo White, said in a press conference that this was an investment bank for the crooked and the corrupt. That is true. A hub of, of this case was uh, this DMN Capital, which was uh, run by a couple of members of organized crime. And uh, they sort of over brought in all members of all five families of, of organized crime to to reap the benefits of their you know fraudulent activities. And it, again, it involved manipulating stocks, selling fake stocks, and boiler room activities. So they ran these boiler rooms, which are these bunch of kids in high, really high pressure atmosphere being forced to sell stock and getting cash money as bribes to sell particular stock. And um, this this DMN Capital was really the hub of the fraud. Was this the case that you received the Director's Award for Outstanding Contributions in Law Enforcement? Yeah, I did, yes. That's pretty cool. So what was your background? Because, I mean, these are some pretty complicated cases. When did you join the FBI and why did you join the FBI? I actually was a lawyer. I practiced law for a few years, but before I went to law school, after college, I went to Wall Street for a year. I worked in some, you know, as an analyst for Solomon Brothers at the time for a year, and then, of course, Black Monday came and the whole bottom fell out of the market, and I left and went back to law school. And I practiced law for five years, just, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill personal injury law, and it wasn't very personally satisfying or professionally satisfying to me. But I, you know, I had developed some skill. I enjoyed talking to people, the interview process, the, you know, uh, the, the depositions that lawyers take. But really what happened was, is I, as soon as I had gotten, um, as soon as I had spent the year on Wall Street, I applied to the FBI. It was sort of always a, a dream of mine. But, you know, at the time there was a hiring freeze. And despite the fact that I sent in my application, I said, well, if we ever, you know, need to hire again, we'll let you down. So I completely sort of forgot about it and forged ahead with my legal career. And about, about three and a half years into my legal career, or maybe four years in, uh, I got uh, out of the blue. I got a letter saying, look, we've listed the hiring freeze. Are you still interested in the FBI? And I said, absolutely, because first of all, I mean, the reality of it is I truly felt like I could do something that is will make a difference. I can actually help out, you know, people, and it can be personally satisfying as well. I know it sounds a bit cliche, but that's absolutely the first thought that goes through my mind is, you know, felt the practice of law was really a completely, you know, self-indulgent exercise at least, the, you know, the, what I was involved in at the time. I can't speak for all of it. But I felt like the FBI could be really personally rewarding. And I think I thought I had something to offer. I mean, truly. So um, for me, it was a no-brainer. And, yes, uh, I, you know, I lost a lot of my making more money, and I took a big hit in salary, and it sort of alters your whole life. But uh, I've always been a person that, you know, looked at the big picture. And fortunately, it worked out for you. Well, you had unbelievable success within six years, and then you left. Yep. Most people 
who joined the FBI stay in the FBI until retirement. So, you know, I'm really curious, first of all, why you decided to leave and what you're doing now. Sure. Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One, at the time, uh, I did not want to be a supervisor. And I had, I sort of had done everything I could do as a case agent. And I was getting a little bit of a gentle pressure to now become a supervisor. To me, I've always felt like I'm an agent. It's what I love to do. I love to be talking to people. I don't want to be someone who's concerned with, uh, you know, bureau cars and, and these, these issues that to me take away from, you know, the mission of the bureau in many respects. I mean, from my perspective, I just did not want to be a supervisor. Uh, I just felt like there's too much paperwork and bureaucracy. Uh, I love being an agent. So that was one factor. Another factor is you have to remember it was after 9-11. And I had testified, I, even I testified in my big security fraud trial, I think I broke the record of 11 days on cross-examination during, you know, shortly after 9-11. So 9-11 occurred. I, of course, worked it um, for three or four months. Then I got pulled off to, in early 2002 to, to testify in all these trials, or late 2001, early 2002. At that point, I felt like all of the resources now, and rightfully so, were going to terrorism. It felt particularly at that time, uh, the atmosphere at that time, and I felt like white-collar crime, which is really what I did best, was not going to get the attention going forward. And again, that wasn't, I, I felt that was the right thing to do, but for me, I felt like maybe it's my time to go. Because, and also the third factor is, if you remember, I did, I felt almost everything you can do as an agent. I had a massive undercover. I had seven or ten Title Threes, which are wiretaps. I had arrested five, six hundred people at the time total, indictments and arrested. I had uh, done thousands of consensual recordings. I just felt like there wasn't much more for me to do. Yes, you could continue to do that at some point, but I felt like I'd become a supervisor. It's difficult after you've had some success. You sort of get pushed in a certain direction. And I just felt sometimes, you know, again, instinctually, I felt it was my time to go. But I've had nothing. My best friends are still agents. Great success. Some are, you know, really uh, in, in incredibly prominent positions, and rightfully so. And that's my former partner and is as well. But for me, ultimately, I just I think I made the right decision. But I love the organization. I love what it did for me. I've never had a negative word and never will have a negative word to say about the FBI. And, uh, again, I, it, was a, it was an experience I would, you know, I treasure. Have you been able to use that experience that you had with the FBI and what you're currently doing now? Yeah, so again, I'm very lucky. I mean, after leaving the FBI, I went with a sort of large investigative firm where I was running the investigations, but as well as learning computer forensics and how to manage the whole new world and burgeoning world of digital forensics. And after about a year and a half, two years there, I went out. And joined, uh, you know, I became a partner with a very small firm at the time, just two other postal inspectors. Again, I took a chance and instinctually it, it, it worked for me and, uh, ended up growing into my current company, which is Renaissance Associates. And we have offices in New York and New Jersey and, and Washington. And, uh, we do really large white collar cases. I mean, some I could mention is we were, in, we did, we were involved in the Madoff case. We were involved in the Flategate case, the NFL investigation. We're involved in so many of the big Wall Street cases, you know, insider trading cases and others that are 
going on. You know, currently we still work for the Department of Justice at times. So I've been very, very fortunate. So it sounds like you left the FBI, but you still have connections. You still have some associations, and you're still doing the same type of work that you did when you were in the Bureau. I tell people all the time I'm very lucky. I essentially have the same job I had in the FBI. I just don't carry a gun or a badge. But, but you know, ultimately I'm doing the same job now in the private sector, and it's a bit more of a challenge, right, not having a gun and a badge. Sometimes it's more challenging to get people to speak to you and so forth. But it's been it's been a tremendous ride to this point. And I would imagine that you're probably paid a little bit more. Absolutely. <laughs> Even though I will say this, when it comes to law enforcement, that FBI agents are, are compensated quite adequately. I'm not complaining. Yeah, I, no, I agree. But honestly, for the job, and I know people only hear about, as you know, the negative things, right? That's all over the place. And you've heard it said a million times, and it's true. All of the great things that these men and women do in the FBI are rarely heard about because, you know, when they're great, you know, the public doesn't hear about it. It's not a travesty. It's not something that necessarily hits the front page of the paper. So I agree with you that that they're compensated for public employees uh, reasonably. Uh, you know, my opinion is, of course, they should be, you know, they should be much better compensated for the work that they do. I will make sure to put a link to your business. Is it Renaissance Associates? Yes, it's R-E-N-U-S-A dot com is the website. Okay, so I'll make sure I put a link to that in case anybody wants to contact you for your agency. But I also wanted to ask you a question about something else that you were doing. You are or were a part of the Smithsonian Channel's sports detectives. Tell me more about that and how yes. did that happen? Well, what happened was, is uh, I guess around 2012 or 13, I was initially called by a production company, and they asked me to be involved in this series that they were going to, uh, through Nat Geo, that they were going to do called Inside the American Mob, and they wanted to sort of profile my uptick investigation, and they wanted me to, you know, speak about it not on camera, and, and I did so, and that was in episode six of Inside the American Mob, which is on Netflix now, and fortunately, that was apparently a very popular episode. So uh, a year or two later, I got a call from a production company who said Smithsonian Channel is looking for a host of a show called Sports Detectives. And because through my company, I've worked for many of the professional sports leagues and, and um, uh, have experience in that whole world, they said, look, we think you'd, you'd be a great host for the show. So as luck would have it again, you know, I they wanted me as a host, and uh, I ended up getting hired to be a host of this show. Uh, which ran for a year and uh, investigated the, some of the great missing artifacts of sport. It was a heck of a lot of fun. I got to travel the country and work with some really, really great and talented people. And uh, perhaps there's you know more to come on that front. One of the things I like to do is to give my guests the last word. So, you know, you could talk about either of the cases that we reviewed or you can just talk about just the FBI in general. What would you like to say? From my perspective, being an agent, I've never been more proud of anything in my life, and and um, I enjoyed virtually every moment of it. And again, none of these cases that I worked and I get all this credit for could have happened without my partners and my squad mates and my supervisors and the people who support you every day. And again, I know it sounds cliche, but this is 100% true. I work with some of the best people that I've ever met in the FBI, and they still remain my friends to this day. It saddens me that the FBI is always getting knocked 
you know, and I, as I read these things in the paper, and I grant you, people make mistakes, and mistakes will always be made and happen made. But uh, if people out there only knew the tremendous work that's being done every day while they sleep comfortably at night, they'd be less inclined to take shots at the FBI. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Kevin Barrows. You'll find links to newspaper articles and FBI website posts on these two cases. I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. But if you're looking for a good crime novel to read, I hope you'll pick up a copy of my crime novels, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, part of my Philadelphia Corruption Squad series. The books are available at Amazon.com as ebooks, paperbacks, and Pay to Play is available as an audiobook. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play or Greedy Givers, For yourself or for someone you know who loves crime fiction, you're helping to support the show. Thank you. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.